PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites. Archive, distribute, and display your photos in a flash-free, responsive website. Try one for free for 14 days at PhotoShelter.com. Get our latest educational guides for free. PhotoShelter.com slash resources. Good afternoon, everyone. You are listening to I Love Photography Live. You might be watching us on video by going to YouTube.com slash PhotoShelter, or maybe you downloaded the podcast by going to iTunes and searching for I Love Photography. Whatever the case is, we're happy to have you here. My regular co-host, Sarah Jacobs, is taking the week off. It's just me, and today we're talking about the World Press Photo Contest. All the winners came out. Some fantastic, fantastic work. But uh, in between all of that work, there was a disclosure that 20% of the penultimate round was disqualified for violating the terms of submission, i.e., the manipulation of these photos was beyond what was acceptable, 20%. Now, we don't know exactly how many photos this represents because they didn't disclose that amount, but we know that 100,000 photos were entered. We're a part of this uh, judging process. You'll also note here 5,600, almost 5,700 photographers entered from 131 different countries. And nearly 100,000 images were submitted as a part of those entries. World Press Photo also came out and said that in the penultimate round of judging, so the second to the last round of judging, it disqualified 20% of its contest finalists. 20%. Last year, James Estrin reported that 8% of the finalists were rejected. And this year, in the penultimate round, 20% were rejected. And some of the quotes that, that came out of World Press, um, Lars Boring, the uh, managing director of World Press, uh, Michelle McNally, who was the jury chair this year, um, Lars said, it seems some photographers can't resist the temptation to aesthetically enhance their images during post-processing, either by removing small details to quote, clean up an image or sometimes bit, uh, by excessive toning that constitutes a material change to the image. Michelle McNally uh, said uh, she couldn't believe that some of the biggest names in photography, people who are in the pantheon, she said, of photography uh, were being disqualified because of some of the uh, manipulations that they were doing, some of the processing changes that they were doing. Now, World Press is been one of those organizations that has taken on the issue of manipulation pretty head-on, I think more so than probably any other photo contest that I've seen. They had a lot of controversy in 2010 uh, because one of the imaging uh, winning images, I think it was the second or third place winner uh, by Stefan Rudik, um, was found to have been manipulated beyond what was allowable. There was an image of a boxer's hand. Below that hand, there was a small foot peeking out of someone in the background, um, and the photographer burned that foot out of existence, so you couldn't see the foot anymore. Raised a lot of discussion because did it materially change the image, the foreground content? And of course, the answer is no, but did it materially change the, the image? Did it delete um, information and make the image a news image less truthful and I think from a lot of people the answer was yes 
after that incident, they started requiring finalists to provide uh, raw files. So since 2010, um, they're one of uh, an increasing number of photo contests that require raw files. Last year in 2014, they commissioned a study uh, called the integrity of the image. That study looked at um, how manipulation was perceived around the world. There was a lot of agreement between all the people that they talked to that manipulation was bad. Any excessive uh, manipulation, any excessive toning, um, curve bending, et cetera, et cetera, was not acceptable, but traditional darkroom uh, style uh, manipulation was okay, whatever that means. And there was some discussion of, you know, continuing to use darkroom analogies is, is kind of bogus in the, in the days of digital. So I wrote a blog post yesterday when all of this stuff came out and it was, the blog post was aimed at this number, this 20%. Um, and it wasn't to discredit any of the winners because I think the winners are fantastic examples of great photography that happened uh, around the world. The discussion that I had revolved around the fact that World Press two years in a row has now come, down, come, come out with a statistic. And they've said, hey, 8% last year, 20% this year, um, and implied that it is a, number one, a problem, and number two, a growing problem. Ironically, they have never done anything to show visual examples of what they consider to be okay. Now, part of the problem is that it's subjective. Their rules say that the jury is the final arbiter of what is acceptable. And the jury changes every year. So there's not going to be uh, agreement every year that this particular image is okay this year um, and next year it may not be okay. So I understand that there's a moving target. On the other hand, to continue to just publish a number without attacking the underlying problem or trying to provide a solution in the form of visual examples and saying this is why this image was rejected. You can say, and I've seen this on Facebook, some photographers saying, hey, uh, these, these people that were disqualified, uh, uh, you know, how, how can they be so dumb? This is ridiculous. On the other hand, if, 20, if one out of five photographers in this second to final round is making this error, there's a huge gap between their understanding of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And just saying something like, uh, excessive toning is not allowed is not bringing any clarity to the issue. So I call upon World Press to contact some of the photographers that they DQ'd, that they disqualified, and ask them to use those images as visual examples for purposes of educating the industry. Are those photographers going to feel a little embarrassed? Uh, sure. Um, but if it brings clarity and allows them to then win in subsequent years, I think it's okay. I think it's worth looking at. Manipulation is a very tough issue for photojournalists. There's a lot of um, people, I wouldn't necessarily say informed pundits, but a lot of people say, what's the big deal? Uh, it's typically people who aren't in the news industry. News people have a thing about veracity. And I think for, for the better. Uh, 
and I know historically a lot of images, even news images, have been uh, very manipulated, but it doesn't mean that we should just go crazy and allow any sort of manipulation to happen. Enough of that. We have some interesting uh, stories to talk about this week. One of those is a uh, series of images that was on the Lens blog. Um, and the Lens blog, obviously, is one of our favorite sources of visual uh, essays. Uh, James Estrin uh, had posted this on his um, Facebook page, and I took a look at it. The photographer is Nancy Borowick. Nancy had the misfortune of losing two parents to cancer uh, within, I think it was like a year's time. So the essay, uh, you know, talked about her father who died from pancreatic, pancreatic cancer. Uh, and then uh, a year later, her mother at 59 died after a 20 year battle with breast cancer. I can't imagine how difficult this was. Uh, I've taken photos before of loved ones who have been near death uh, and who subsequently died. I can't imagine losing both of your parents and then going through the process of trying to photograph that. I saw similar essays at the National Geographic Photographers Conference this year, uh, and it's heart-wrenching. Um, you know, you see, and in this case, they were young, 58 and 59. You see the life that's in these people and then you see the life being sucked out of them um, and you see them in a hospice situation. It's really, really touching, intimate work. Um, and it's the kind of work that, when we talk about intimacy of an image, you know, a child taking photos of their parent or parents, um, it's hard to get much more intimate than that. Two parents dying. Really hard. I, I don't know that that uh, a random photojournalist could have gone into this situation back to back, even with a long-term commitment, and come up with these types of images. Perhaps a really great photojournalist could have done it. But you know, there's just a, a level of comfort. A, a photo like this with uh, son and daughter with their mom, kind of sorting out stuff, and then hearing stories about each item that she's taking out of these boxes from storage. Really touching. All of the stories that we're talking about today, you'll find links to them on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. We hope you check that out. On Petapixel, I love time-lapse. Time-lapse, of course, is a series of photos that are stitched together to make a movie. No one has really ever talked about 10K video because 10K video doesn't really exist. Uh, 10K video uh, alluding to the fact, at least in this case, that the dimensions of the video is uh, 10,328 pixels by 77,760 uh, 7, pixels. The photographer is Los Angeles-based uh, Joe Capra, who used a phase one 80 megapixel back to create this set of images in Rio. And it's stunning. And he put it up on Vimeo. Vimeo has great uh, high-def capabilities. But high-def is literally 1,000 pixels wide. Well, 19, 1920 if it's full high-def. Um, so it's only a fifth of the width of this uh, video. And what he does in order to illustrate 
the clarity of these images is he'll actually zoom in. So that's at uh, 50%. And then now he's at 100%. And it's it's pretty staggering, I have to say, and the, and the effect of the time lapse is incredible. If you've ever been to Rio, you need to watch this. This is just beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, and in talking about things like 4K video or 8K video, in a lot of cases, you know, people are saying, well, we're not shooting 4K in order to display 4K. We're shooting 4K in order that we can crop into it for regular HD. Now, of course, there's 4K televisions that are come out, coming out. And eventually 4K uh, will be more of a standard and people will shoot in 4K natively or they'll shoot in 8K so that they can crop into 4K, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever the case may be, uh, to see that level of visual acuity is amazing, 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 amazing. So speaking about high resolution, Canon announced last, last week that uh, they're upgrading their 5D series with a 50 megapixel sensor, 50 megapixel sensor. Now, I don't want to poo-poo Canon because I know a lot of people will shoot Canon. And a lot of people use the 5D because it's a, it's a fantastic full-frame camera. And probably more to the point, it's a fantastic video camera that a lot of indie filmmakers use because it's low cost. You, you can have tremendous depth of field. There's good glass for it. 50 megapixels. First of all, you know, I shoot with the Nikon D800 and the files, the raw files are huge. And people don't talk about the fact, you know, I went to a Hasselblad event the other day and I looked at, they have a new digital back called the CFV uh, 50C. It's a 50 megapixel back for the old V system film cameras, analog cameras. I asked the guy from Hasselblad, how big are these files? And he said, ah, they're coming in around 100 30 megabytes a piece. And so you have to assume that these 50 megapixel uh, file, raw files coming out of the 5DS and the 5DS R are going to be kind of on the same par, probably in excess of 100 megabytes a piece. How the heck are you going to store that if you're shooting, say, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 images a year, which wouldn't be unusual for a professional photographer? So there's that whole question of storage. The next question is, what sort of glass are you going to use? All Most of the glass that, that any of the major DSLR manufacturers have come out with in the past 20 years won't have resolving power. The glass simply wasn't built to resolve to a 50 megapixel sensor. So you're not, you're not even going to be able to take advantage of that. Uh, and then number three, they're stuffing, in, in this case, you know, the, the full frame sensor is only so big and they're stuffing more and more photo sites onto that thing such that the maximum ISO on this guy is 12,800. The maximum ISO is 12,800. The maximum ISO on the Sony A7 or at least one of those, and the maximum ISO on the Nikons goes up to 102,000, and then you can push it up to 400,000. And, and arguably, the things that people have been talking about as being evolutionary or revolutionary in, in pro camera design is light sensitivity and better autofocus.
it's weird to get back into the discussion of uh, pixels again. I mean, not not saying that I wouldn't love to try one of these cameras, but I think it brings up a lot of questions. And then the other thing, you know, the 5D is known for having created so many great indie films. Television shows were filmed with it. Uh, SNL used it a few seasons ago for their opening uh, sequence. This camera still shoots normal HD. It's not a 4K camera. It's just normal HD. It's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. It's, it's almost like, uh, you know, apparently it is a Canon design sensor manufactured by uh, Sony. Um, but it makes me scratch my head a little bit because I don't know that anybody was clamoring for 50 megapixels that was really using the 5D. It was such a great camera. I, I, I think it would have been more interesting to have 4K capabilities off of the, the camera. And one of my big things uh, in regards to DSLR design is I still want sort of built-in Wi-Fi battery issues withstanding. And the other thing that drives me nuts, why can't it just use Bluetooth to sync to your phone to get the time? It's crazy to me. You know, if you, if you carry two cameras and you travel outside of your time zone, now you're fiddling with the time zone settings, which are the menus are always a disaster to me. There are simple things that could have made the camera better. Anyway, I'm, I'm sure they'll sell a ton of them because 5Ds are great, but uh, it, it has me scratching my head a little bit. On last week's show, we talked about uh, a photo contest winner that was an iceberg. It was an amateur photographer who went on an Antarctic cruise. Uh, the winner shot a photo of an iceberg, and then someone complained about plagiarism, and it turned out the person who complained was on the exact same cruise standing next to this other person and shot basically the same image. And we talked about, oh, how, you know, as an amateur, you're not waiting for anything. You're on the cruise, you roll by an iceberg, you take a photo and you're done. And, and you think that that's a, a great photo. Um, and you think that you're the best photographer in the world. I came across these images by Alex Cornell. He went down to Antarctica in December of 2014. And I'm not saying that he wasn't on a cruise or, or whatever. I mean, who knows the context here? But he got a photo of a flipped iceberg. So normally icebergs are covered with ice and they're icy. But when they flip occasionally, you see this kind of crazy blue ice thing going on. And relative to the conversation that Sarah and I had last week, I was just like, wow, this is a cool, <laughs> cool photo. Uh, obviously, uh, better framed in my opinion, better exposed, uh, better uh, processed, better toned. It's a beautiful image. This is the kind of thing that you might want to hang on your uh, wall as opposed to, you know, just throwing on your, your Instagram. So kudos to Alex for taking a really, really nice photo of a flipped iceberg. Not only an iceberg, but a flipped iceberg. You can find him at alexcornell.com. I love selfies. If you listen to the show in the past, you know how much I love selfies and talking about them. Not, not because of the selfie itself, but because of the, uh, the thing it says about our, our, our culture. Um, and I don't even know that it says anything negative about our culture. I just think that it's a, a funny and a fun and an interesting cultural phenomenon to look at. Well, it turns out a lot of museums in New York, as well as around the world, are banning the selfie stick. The selfie stick 
is it, you know, I saw the first, my first selfie stick about three years ago when I was traveling and I thought, wow, that's cool. And now they're like ubiquitous. You see them everywhere. And for museums, they're saying it's a safety issue and it's distracting for other uh, museum goers, which I would agree with. So uh, the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA, uh, is banning them. Uh, and the Guggenheim is banning them. And the Frick is banning them. Um, and it's a funny uh, phenomenon. And I, I think probably rightfully so. Uh, I still love to see images taken from selfie sticks because I think it gives you that just added perspective. On the other hand, you know, have someone else take the photo of you. That's That works too. So there you go, selfie stick. Speaking of selfies, BuzzFeed, this was an interesting uh, combination. BuzzFeed uh, teamed up with the White House uh, and President Obama um, in a promotion for the uh, uh, American, what is it, ACA, healthcare, let's call it Obamacare because I can't remember what the acronym stands for, Affordability Care Act, I think that's what it is. And it's just a funny, it's a funny video, uh, Obama sort of poking fun at himself and using a selfie stick and pr practicing his faces in the mirror. Uh, it, it's, it's regardless of political persuasion, I thought it was a cute video. Um, and it was very, it was very uh, uh, culturally uh, in tune in regards to you know people looking at themselves in the mirror and being you know slightly narcissistic, narcissistic, and then taking photos of themselves or using a selfie stick to do that. So that was fun. BuzzFeed, as you know, is sort of the the champ of the listicle, as we like to call them. You know, top ten reasons of this, twelve photos to show you that. They also created a news division with some pretty hard-hitting news and some pretty big names in news in order to sort of combat the notion that they're just kind of a silly outlet, which they are. Um, but some of the new stuff is impressive. And, and when I was looking at this Obama video here, I also came across uh, a set of images. This article is called War is Hell, Pictures from the Front Line of Ukraine, uh, photos by, I think he's a Russian photographer named Max Avdiv. Uh, or Ukrainian or Eastern European. Uh, oh, no, yeah, a BuzzFeed uh, contributor. And uh, so Max went to different front lines in Eastern Ukraine and shot images of destruction. And I, I have to say, to show you sort of cultural bias, um, and I'm not, I'm not embarrassed to say that, you know, you're used to seeing shelled buildings and total destruction in the context of places like Iraq and Af Afghanistan. You're used to seeing, you know, Europe and Eastern European things in movies about World War II, like Fury. That's what I, you know, and, and I've been to places in France and, and whatnot where you see shell holes still in the wall. Looking at these images and knowing that they, they came from Ukraine a few weeks or a few months ago, was kind of shocking, to be honest. Ukraine, you know, being a very stable, uh, until a few months ago, a very stable uh, place. Democracy. And now you're seeing this. Buildings that are totally uh, crushed. 
people that are walking from place to place uh, with all of their belongings, uh, shelled walls. A, a really, really interesting set of images. Uh, and I would encourage you to take a look at these. I think that they're, uh, you know, what, what dominates in the news changes very, very quickly because of the 24-hour news cycle. And Ukraine is a really, really interesting and difficult place to be right now. And uh, these images kind of illustrated that. Feature Shoot, one of our favorite websites. They feature a lot of different uh, images from many lesser known photographers. This set of images is from the Changing World of Mongolia by Lucille Chambard de Lau. Um, and it's called, well, I'll use my American accent, Foyer's Mongols, um, and the changes that are happening in Mongolia, but shot uh, with the square format. It looks like film, looks like six by six to me, uh, but medium format, uh, definitely. Um, you get that sort of separation between foreground and background element. A really nice set of portraits. Uh, a really nice set of more photojournalistic style images here. It's the kind of work that I love to see. It's not, it's not obvious. It's not uh, salacious. It's, it's quiet, beautiful, well-exposed, well-composed, uh, thoughtfully edited work. Um, and really deserves a larger audience for what she's doing here. Great stuff. There was a Japanese photographer, uh, Kishin Shinoyama, who uh, 30 years ago walked with Yoko Ono and John Lennon through Central Park, spent a few hours with them, took a whole bunch of images, a few of which were used on an album cover and the rest of which were never seen by anyone, including Yoko Ono. And then recently, the photographer met up with Yoko again, showed her the images, and then they collaborated on a book that's being published by Tashin. Uh, Kishin Shinoyama, John Lennon, and Yoko Ono, Double Fantasy. If you're into that era of life and of music, this will be interesting to you. The only thing that will not be interesting to you is the price tag. $700 is the entry to see these images. The, they produce a little video that gives you snippets of it. I, I don't know. You know, Tashin has a lot of high-priced stuff, a lot of their sumo-sized books, oversized books. There's usually an entry-level book option that's much cheaper on the order of $50 to $75, and then they have their $1,500 options. In this case, the Shinoyama images, $700 is the price of entry. I just don't know that I will be participating in that. I mean, I might stop by the Tashin store in Soho and take a look, but that's pretty steep. I mean, he must think that these images are pretty precious. I guess they are in the context uh, you know, of John Lennon and Yoko Ono and then Lennon being killed uh, three months later. But $700, man, that's a lot of, that's a lot of coin. But if you love... John Lennon and Yoko Ono, this might be for you. Tashin's Kishin Shinoyama, John Lennon and Yoko Ono, Double Fantasy. This is 
Valentine's Day weekend. We always like to end on an uplifting or inspirational or funny note. This week, it's all about love. And over on the Time Life Box, uh, a set of images by the photographer Lauren Fleischman and her latest book, The Lovers, is a set of images of people that have been married for at least 50 years. 50 years. Some of them even much longer than that. She thought it was going to be uh, couples that have been together for 50 years and 50 couples. She ended up shooting more than 100 couples around the world. Uh, and she would always say, give your spouse a kiss, uh, which would help break the ice. And she said, you know, she was surprised how the heads just sort of fit together and how when they kissed, it really relaxed them. Um, there's so much interesting research coming out about couples. And uh, I think I read one uh, either in the New York Times or in New York Mag about how couples remember things remember different things about certain events so they're actually a unit in the way that they remember things. There's like some sort of cognitive uh, symmetry or symbiosis in the way that they remember things. So, you know, the guy might remember one aspect of an event and the woman might remember another aspect of the event. I'm only saying guy and woman because gay marriage hasn't been around long enough to be 50 years or not. Uh, but this is a really, really great set of images. Gotta love older people sort of expressing their love for one another. And Lauren said that the project was sort of initiated because she went through a box of love letters from her grandparents. And she couldn't believe how uh, effusive uh, and loving they were to one another. And it, it, it got her thinking. So on this Valentine's Day, whether you're alone or with a loved one or uh, in the midst of something new, head over to the top, the light box and take a look at these lovely images from the upcoming book, The Lovers by Lauren Fleischman. You're probably wondering where the heck Sarah Jacobs is if you're a regular listener and or watcher of I Love Photography. Sarah has the week off is where she is, so you have to settle for me this week, but that's okay. She'll be back next week for another episode of I Love Photography. So until then, have a great weekend. Stay warm if you're in the uh, Northeast, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.